0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, Fiction Editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear two very short stories by Donald Barthelme. one called The School and the other called Game.
1: If certain events take place upon the console, we are to insert our keys in the appropriate locks and turn our keys. Shotwell has a key, and I have a key.
0: The stories were chosen by T.C. Boyle, whose own stories have been appearing in The New Yorker since the early 90s. His most recent book, The Collected Stories of T. Carragasin Boyle, Volume 2, came out in the fall of 2013. T.C. Boyle first appeared on this podcast in 2008 when he read Bullet in the Brain by Tobias Wolfe. Welcome back, Tom.
1: Ah, the pleasure to be here. Thanks, Deborah.
0: Now, what made you think of reading Donald Barthelme this time around?
1: Well, he's one of my heroes, and he was one of the formative writers for me when I was first beginning to write in the early 70s to mid-70s. I love his uh, sense of humor and the oddity of the situations he comes up with.
0: And do you think that some of that oddity crept into your own work when you were starting out?
1: Oh, absolutely. I was obsessed with Bartholomew, with with Robert Coover, and Gunter Grass, and uh, Italo Calvino, and uh, Garcia Marquez, all of these writers uh, who had a bizarre sense of humor and a bizarre worldview, and uh, I share it with them.
0: Now, Bartholomew's usually referred to as a postmodernist or an absurdist. Do you think those terms are correct ones or apt ones for him?
1: I think so. He's very abstract. I, though, prefer the stories that have something resembling uh, what we would call a plot and also A lead character. Both of these stories are eye narratives.
0: Right, but not always typical of his work.
1: No, it's not. But I chose these two because these remain two of my very favorites. I mean, it would be more usual, I suppose, to do something like Indian Uprising, which I'm sure is his most anthologized piece. Mm -hmm. And it is extraordinary in terms of its um, experiment with form. It does also have an eye narrator, but that narrator isn't quite as emotionally involved as the narrator's of these two stories are. It's a much more cool narrative. So I prefer these uh, for a live reading.
0: And what do you think he's up to in these stories?
1: Well, I mean, without having to uh, uh, spoil it for the listeners by trying to interpret them, I would say that uh, in the school, he's having a good satiric poke at curricula. And the idea that education is formative, instructive, helps us to see what we are in the world, but of course that can never be because the world is infinitely mysterious, dangerous, and just plain bad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I want to go to the school where you're the headmaster.
1: (laughs) And and game, of course, is a a story of its period when uh, the Cold War was on and uh, people from the military were uh, locked away in these missile silos and presumably, we all felt these were uh, uh, very sane and, uh, and, and decent, honorable, uh, dutiful people who would uh, do what was required of them. And never, of course, never, never would they have any emotional problems.
0: Well, let's, let's hear the school first. It's very short. It's only a page long. Do you think there's anything else that listeners should know about the story before they hear it?
1: I don't think so. I think any further discussion of it might spoil it. Right. It's a dramatic monologue. It's spoken to someone who is present but doesn't respond, and I think that gives it a little extra oomph as far as um, a performance piece.
0: Well, we'll talk a bit more about it after you read it. And now here's T.C. Boyle reading The School by Donald Bartholomew.
1: Well, we had all these children out planting trees, see, because we figured that, well, that was part of their education to see how, you know, the, the root systems and, and also the sense of responsibility, taking care of things, being individually responsible. You know what I mean. And the trees all died. They were orange trees. I don't know why they died. They just died. Something wrong with the soil, possibly, or maybe the stuff we got from the nursery wasn't the best. We complained about it. So we've got 30 kids there. Each kid had his or her own little tree to plant. And we've got these 30 dead trees. All these kids looking at these little brown sticks. It was depressing. It wouldn't have been so bad except that just a couple of weeks before the thing with the trees, the snakes all died. But I think that the snakes, well, the reason that the snakes kicked off was that, you remember, the boiler was shut off for four days because of the strike, and that was explicable. It was something you could explain to the kids because of the strike. I mean, none of their parents would let them cross the picket line, and they knew there was a strike going on and what it meant. So when things got started up again and we found the snakes, they weren't too disturbed. With the herb gardens, it was probably a case of overwatering, and at least now they know not to overwater. The children were very conscientious with the herb gardens, and some of them probably, you know, slipped them a little extra water when we weren't looking. Or maybe, well, I don't like to think about sabotage, though it did occur to us. I mean, it was something that crossed our minds. We were thinking that way probably because before that the gerbils had died, and the white mice had died, and the salamander. Well, now they know not to carry them around in plastic bags. Of course, we expected the tropical fish to die. That was no surprise. Those numbers, you look at them crooked and their belly up on the surface. But the lesson plan called for a tropical fish input at that point, there was nothing we could do. It happens every year. You just have to hurry past it. We weren't even supposed to have a puppy. We weren't even supposed to have one. It was just a puppy the Murdoch girl found under a Gristides truck one day, and she was afraid the truck would run over it when the driver had finished making his delivery... So she stuck it in her knapsack and brought it to school with her. So we had this puppy. As soon as I saw the puppy, I thought, Oh, Christ, I bet it'll live for about two weeks. And then, and that's what it did. It wasn't supposed to be in the classroom at all. There's some kind of regulation about it. Well, you can't tell them they can't have a puppy when the puppy is already there, right in front of them, running around on the floor and yap, yap, yapping. They named it Edgar. That is, they named it after me. They had a lot of fun running after it and yelling, Here, Edgar. Nice, Edgar. Then they'd laugh like hell. They enjoyed the ambiguity. I enjoyed it myself. I don't mind being kidded. They made a little house for it in the supply closet and all that. I don't know what it died of. Distemper, I guess. It probably hadn't had any shots. I got it out of there before the kids got to school. I checked the supply closet each morning routinely because I knew what was going to happen. I gave it to the custodian. And then there was this Korean orphan that the class adopted through the Help the Children program. All the kids brought in a quarter a month. That was the idea. It was an unfortunate thing. The kid's name was Kim, and maybe we adopted him too late or something. The cause of death was not stated in the letter we got. They suggested we adopt another child instead and sent us some interesting case histories. But we didn't have the heart. The class took it pretty hard. They began—I think nobody ever said anything to me directly— to feel that maybe there was something wrong with the school. But I don't think there's anything wrong with the school particularly. I've seen better and I've seen worse. It was just a run of bad luck. We had an extraordinary number of parents passing away, for instance. There were, I think, two heart attacks and two suicides, one drowning and four killed together in a car accident. One stroke. And we had the usual heavy mortality rate among the grandparents, or maybe it was heavier this year. It seems so. And finally, the tragedy. The tragedy occurred when Matthew Wine and Tony Mavragorda were playing over where they're excavating for the new federal office building. There are all these big wooden beams stacked, you know, at the edge of the excavation. There's a court case coming out of that. The parents are claiming that the beams were poorly stacked. I don't know what's true and what's not. It's been a strange year. I forgot to mention Billy Brant's father, who was knifed fatally when he grappled with a masked intruder in his home. One day, we had a discussion in class. They asked me, where did they go? The trees, the salamander, the tropical fish, Edgar, the papas and mammas, Matthew and Tony, where did they go? And I said, I don't know, I don't know. And they said, Who knows? And I said, Nobody knows. And they said, Is death that which gives meaning to life? And I said, No, life is that which gives meaning to life. Then they said, But isn't death considered as a fundamental datum, the means by which the taken for granted mundanity of the everyday may be transcended in the direction of I said, yes, maybe. They said, we don't like it. I said, that's sound. They said, it's a bloody shame. I said, it is. They said, will you make love now with Helen, our teaching assistant, so that we can see how it is done? We know you like Helen. I do like Helen, but I said that I would not. We've heard so much about it, they said, but we've never seen it. I said I would be fired, and it was never or almost never done as a demonstration. Helen looked out of the window. They said, please, please make love with Helen. We require an assertion of value. We are frightened. I said that they shouldn't be frightened, although I am often frightened, and that there was value everywhere. Helen came and embraced me. I kissed her a few times on the brow. We held each other. The children were excited. Then there was a knock on the door. I opened the door, and the new gerbil walked in. The children cheered wildly.
0: That was The School by Donald Barthelme, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1974. So, Tom, what is going on at this school? We have a a story of a thousand words or so which runs through these many, many deaths of plants and pets and parents and students, and the students try to come to grips with the meaning of these deaths. Is this just a run-of-the-mill, standard series of accidents? Is it the usual attrition of life, or is there something more sinister going on here?
1: Part of the fun is that the uh, the narrator feels that that is the case, that it's just um, the normal way life goes, you know, the tropical <laughs> fish, <laughs> they're going <laughs> to die, you know that. It's also a, some, a great story with regard to comic timing. After we have this concatenation of deaths, we come to a line given its own paragraph. We weren't even supposed to have a puppy. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> you just burst into laughter because you know what's coming.
0: Everything. It's the way of the world. Everything will go.
1: Yeah, and another thing about this, uh, Deborah, is um, any story like this that relies upon comic escalation always has the problem of where does it end? You can't escalate infinitely. How does the writer get out of this story? And I think Bartholomew is very clever and funny with his ending, and it also speaks below the surface of the story to what really defeats death in some way in terms of our species going on, et cetera, and that is uh, sex and birth.
0: Mhm Well, let's talk a bit about that ending. we have We have this long list of of deaths. And then, in the last couple hundred words or so, we get we get something else. we get that exchange kind of surreal exchange between the teacher and the students, you know, with young children saying things like, isn't death considered as a fundamental datum, the means by which the taken for granted mundanity of the everyday may be transcended? And you get students asking their teachers to to demonstrate sex. How literally are we meant to take it?
1: Well, your quote there is wonderful. I mean, this distinguishes this as a Barthelme's story. I think another writer, might have had the children speak in character. But he steps out to remind us that he is a puppet master and that these are abstractions and that he is playing with us, despite the fact he's given us an eye narrator and a dramatic monologue. For instance, he doesn't use contractions very often in speech. It's a formal way of presenting it to remind you that this is a story. Mm-hmm. As far as the, uh, the situation with Helen, the teaching assistant, it's certainly playful and it does have its symbolic value, as, as we said.
0: George Saunders wrote a, an essay about this story. What he says about that sort of switch in the story, the moment where the deaths stop happening and this, this dialogue begins, he says this is the moment at which Bartholomew's mind has gotten tired of being polite <laughs> <laughs> which which kind of plays into your sense. He's he's saying, forget this I narrator, forget this realism. We're we're going into what I really want to talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But still, still it is a short story that is organized and structured quite beautifully. And each joke builds on top of the other joke, from you know, the lower species to, to us and to the parents and to the you know, and, and to the actual children in the class dying. How do you get out of this? And I think this is Bartholomew's solution. Yeah. And it's been so absurdly hilarious because it's the gerbil that walks in, you know. So what is
0: that gerbil? <laughs> Does that gerbil mean something?
1: I mean, we don't want to get too Darwinian about it. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be any creature, but it's just kind of preposterous that it's a gerbil. I mean, it could be a praying mantis. (laughs) It could be anything. But the fact that it's a gerbil is kind of hilarious. And further, who is knocking on the door? The gerbil himself, you know? He's here. He's here (laughs) to save the day. Okay, the salamanders are dead. Everything else is dead. But here's your new gerbil.
0: Do you think that the gerbil is doomed?
1: Well, I wouldn't want to speculate on that, um, <laughs> unless I'm going to write the sequel here. If I wrote the sequel, uh, the gerbil would begin to, uh, to talk, actually, and would explain in these abstract terms to the class the meaning of life, of course. But um, at this point, I wouldn't want to speculate on that. I think we're happy that uh, we've had uh, birth and death, and here's the gerbil. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right well, maybe on that note we should we should turn to the second story which was published almost 10 years earlier in 1965 is there anything that you want to say to introduce game before we hear it
1: it's a what if story do we really trust the military um, to take care of us what is the cold war after all how can human beings be in charge of these weapons of mass destruction where are the safeguards what does it mean what does it do to the soldier psychologically to have this responsibility thrust upon him. What if there was an oversight and these uh, soldiers uh, were left uh, to their own devices? People forgot about them. I mean, it's easy. There are so many missile silos. What if, you know, somebody died or didn't turn up for work and these poor guys were stuck down there? What next?
0: Well, now here's T.C. Boyle reading Game by Donald Barthelmey.
1: Shotwell keeps the jacks and the rubber ball in his attache case and will not allow me to play with them. He plays with them, alone, sitting on the floor near the console, hour after hour, chanting onesies, twosies, threesies, foursies, in a precise, well-modulated voice, not so loud as to be annoying, not so soft as to allow me to forget. I point out to Shotwell that two can derive more enjoyment from playing jacks than one, but he is not interested. I have asked repeatedly to be allowed to play by myself... "'but he simply shakes his head. "'Why?' I ask. "'They're mine,' he says. "'And when he has finished, when he has sated himself, "'back they go into his attache case. "'It is unfair, but there is nothing I can do about it. "'I am aching to get my hands on them. "'Shotwell and I watch the console. "'Shotwell and I live under the ground and watch the console.' If certain events take place upon the console, we are to insert our keys in the appropriate locks and turn our keys. Shotwell has a key, and I have a key. If we turn our keys simultaneously, the bird flies. Certain switches are activated, and the bird flies. But the bird never flies. In 133 days, the bird has not flown. Meanwhile, Shotwell and I watch each other. We each wear a forty-five, and if Shotwell behaves strangely, I am supposed to shoot him. If I behave strangely, Shotwell is supposed to shoot me. We watch the console and think about shooting each other and think about the bird. Shotwell's behavior with the jacks is strange. Is it strange? I do not know. Perhaps he is merely a selfish bastard. Perhaps his character is flawed. Perhaps his childhood was twisted. I do not know. Each of us wears a forty-five, and each of us is supposed to shoot the other if the other is behaving strangely. How strangely is strangely? I do not know. In addition to the forty-five, I have a thirty-eight which Shotwell does not know about concealed in my attache case, and Shotwell has a twenty-five caliber Beretta which I do not know about strapped to his right calf. Sometimes, instead of watching the console, I pointedly watch Shotwell's forty-five, but this is simply a ruse, simply a maneuver. In reality, I am watching his hand when it dangles in the vicinity of his right calf. If he decides I am behaving strangely, he will shoot me not with the forty-five but with the Beretta. Similarly, Shotwell pretends to watch my forty-five, but he is really watching my hand resting idly atop my attache case. My hand resting idly atop my attache case. My hand! My hand resting idly atop my attache case. In the beginning, I took care to behave normally. So did Shotwell. Our behavior was painfully normal. Norms of politeness, consideration, speech, and personal habits were scrupulously observed. But then it became apparent that an error had been made, that our relief was not going to arrive, owing to an oversight. Owing to an oversight, we have been here for 133 days. When it became clear that an error had been made, that we were not to be relieved, the norms were relaxed. Definitions of normality were redrawn in the agreement of January 1, called by us the agreement. Uniform regulations were relaxed, and mealtimes are no longer rigorously scheduled. We eat when we are hungry, and sleep when we are tired. Considerations of rank and precedence were temporarily put aside, a handsome concession on the part of Shotwell, who is a captain, whereas I am only a first lieutenant. One of us watches the console at all times, rather than two of us watching the console at all times, except when we are both on our feet. One of us watches the console at all times, and if the bird flies, then that one wakes the other, and we turn our keys in the lock simultaneously, and the bird flies. Our system involves a delay of perhaps 12 seconds, but I do not care, because I am not well. And Shotwell does not care, because he is not himself. After the agreement was signed, Shotwell produced the jacks and the rubber bowl from his attache case, and I began to write a series of descriptions of forms occurring in nature, such as a shell, a leaf, a stone, an animal, on the walls. Shotwell plays jacks, and I write descriptions of natural forms on the walls. Shotwell is enrolled in a USAFI course which leads to a master's degree in business administration from the University of Wisconsin although we are not in Wisconsin. We are in Utah, Montana, or Idaho. When we went down, it was in either Utah, Montana, or Idaho. I don't remember. We have been here for 133 days, owing to an oversight. The pale green reinforced concrete walls sweat, and the air conditioning zips on and off erratically, and Shotwell reads Introduction to Marketing by Lassiter and Monk making notes with a blue ballpoint pen. Shotwell is not himself, but I do not know it. He presents a calm aspect and reads Introduction to Marketing and makes his exemplary notes with a blue ballpoint pen, meanwhile controlling the 38 in my attaché case with one-third of his attention. I am not well. We have been here 133 days owing to an oversight, although now we are not sure what is oversight, what is plan. Perhaps the plan is for us to stay here permanently, or if not permanently, at least for a year, for 365 days. Or if not for a year, for some number of days known to them and not known to us, such as 200 days. Or perhaps they are observing our behavior in some way, sensors of some kind. Perhaps our behavior determines the number of days. It may be that they are pleased with us, with our behavior, not in every detail, but in some. Perhaps the whole thing is very successful. Perhaps the whole thing is an experiment, and the experiment is very successful. I do not know but I suspect that the only way they can persuade sun-loving creatures into their pale, green, sweating, reinforced concrete rooms under the ground is to say that the system is twelve hours on, twelve hours off, and then lock us below for some number of days known to them and not known to us. We eat well, although the frozen enchiladas are damp when defrosted and the frozen devil's food cake is sour and untasty. We sleep uneasily and acrimoniously. I hear Shotwell shouting in his sleep, objecting, denouncing, cursing sometimes, weeping sometimes in his sleep. When Shotwell sleeps, I try to pick the lock on his attache case so as to get at the jacks. Thus far, I have been unsuccessful. Nor has Shotwell been successful in picking the locks on my attache case so as to get at the 38. I have seen the marks on the shiny surface. I laughed In the latrine, pale green walls sweating and the air conditioning whispering. In the latrine. I write descriptions of natural forms on the walls, scratching them on the tile surface with a diamond. The diamond is a two-and-one-half-carat solitaire I had in my attaché case when we went down. It was for Lucy. The south wall of the room containing the console is already covered. I have described a shell, a leaf, a stone, animals, a baseball bat. I am aware that the baseball bat is not a natural form. Yet I described it. The baseball bat, I said, is typically made of wood. It is typically one meter in length or a little longer, fat at one end, tapering to afford a comfortable grip at the other. The end with the handhold typically offers a slight rim or lip at the nether extremity to prevent slippage. My description of the baseball bat ran to 4,500 words, all scratched with a diamond on the south wall. Does Shotwell read what I have written? I do not know. I am aware that Shotwell regards my writing behavior as a little strange, yet it is no stranger than his Jack's behavior or the day he appeared in black bathing trunks with the twenty- five caliber beretta strapped to his right calf and stood over the console, trying to span with his two arms outstretched the distance between the locks. He could not do it. I had already tried standing over the console with my two arms outstretched. The distance is too great. I was moved to comment, but did not comment. Comment would have provoked counter-comment. Comment would have led God knows where. They had, in their infinite patience, in their infinite foresight, in their infinite wisdom, already imagined a man standing over the console with his two arms outstretched, trying to span with his two arms outstretched the distance between the locks. Shotwell is not himself. He has made certain overtures. The burden of his message is not clear. It has something to do with the keys, with the locks. Shotwell is a strange person. He appears to be less affected by our situation than I. He goes about his business stolidly, watching the console, studying introduction to marketing, bouncing his rubber ball on the floor in a steady, rhythmical, conscientious manner. He appears to be less affected by our situation than I am. He is stolid. He says nothing. But he has made certain overtures. Certain overtures have been made. I am not sure that I understand them. They have something to do with the keys, with the locks. Shotwell has something in mind. Stolidly, he shucks the shiny silver paper from the frozen enchiladas. Stolidly, he stuffs them into the electric oven. But he has something in mind. But there must be a quid pro quo. I insist on a quid pro quo. I have something in mind. I am not well. I do not know our target. They do not tell us for which city the bird is targeted. I do not know. That is planning. That is not my responsibility. My responsibility is to watch the console, and when certain events take place upon the console, turn my key in the lock. Shotwell bounces the rubber ball on the floor in a steady, stolid, rhythmical manner. I am aching to get my hands on the ball, on the jacks. We have been here 133 days owing to an oversight— I write on the walls. Shotwell chants onesies, twosies, threesies, foursies in a precise, well-modulated voice. Now he cups the jacks and the rubber bowl in his hands and rattles them suggestively. I do not know for which city the bird is targeted. Shotwell is not himself. Sometimes I cannot sleep. Sometimes Shotwell cannot sleep. Sometimes when Shotwell cradles me in his arms and rocks me to sleep, singing Brahms Guten Abend, Gute Nacht, or I cradle Shotwell in my arms and rock him to sleep, singing. I understand what it is Shotwell wishes me to do. At such moments we are very close, but only if he will give me the jacks. That is fair. There is something he wants me to do with my key, while he does something with his key. But only if he will give me my turn. That is fair. I am not well.
0: That was T.C. Boyle reading Game by Donald Bartholomew. Both The School and Game appear in the Bartholomew Collection 60 Stories, which was published in 1981 and was reissued in paperback by Penguin Classics in 2003. Penguin also reissued the shorter collection 40 Stories in 2005. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence a place that indeed contradicted her presence.
1: She might as well go to lunch.
0: Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Tom, game, as we've heard, is set in this underground bunker with these soldiers trying to keep themselves busy while waiting for orders to to launch a nuclear missile. Is it an activist story? Is it an anti-nuke story?
1: I think so. I think yeah. you're absolutely, but on the other hand it's done as a, a gentle uh, clever and subtle satire of the whole notion. And you know, I would think that... Um, It still has relevance today, although I guess we probably have computers and robots down there, and we've got to trust them much more than mere human beings, right?
0: (laughs) Well, they might not be (laughs) distracted by a game of jacks. Maybe not. What do you think is the oversight that's happened here? Why have these men been left in this place for 133 days?
1: Well, uh, our narrator speculates that perhaps it's by plan. Maybe it's an experiment to see what they will do. But I think, actually, that it doesn't really need explanation. Mm-hmm. It um, is just something that happens. There are accidents. Uh, I think they've been forgotten about.
0: But they have enough frozen food.
1: <laughs> yes, the frozen <laughs> enchiladas. Yes, indeed.
0: I, I think it's funny that Bartholomew breaks the old Jacobian rule here. And all, of, all of these guns are, are mentioned and described, and none of them are fired in the course of the story.
1: <laughs>
0: and, and, and why do you think he called the character Shotwell?
1: I think, of course, it has... Um, Symbolic reference to his function. Um, it's also a kind of funny name, and it sounds kind of funny. <laughs> as far as the guns are concerned, it creates a level of tension in the story. What's at stake here? Yes, the, you know, the entire human race and, and nuclear war. But on the immediate level with these two characters, what's at stake is um, they are constantly assessing one another. And if one of them behaves strangely, the other must execute him. We can't have the risk of anything happening with these nuclear weapons. And so I think that in a, a blackly comic way just uh, pumps up uh, what's at stake in the story.
0: In the school, it was a matter of escalation of this list. And here, I think what stands out to me most is is the kind of litany of repetition, this, these kind of repeating refrains. I'm not well. I ache to get my hands on them something of sort of a, a lyric poem in it, it's kind of a, a round or a villanelle or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's meant in a comic way to show the deterioration of the narrator's mind. It's a way of showing his deterioration without having to come out and express it exactly.
0: The school ends, I think on an up note, we have this rebirth. We have this cheerful, innocent, durable tapping at the door game. I'm not sure what note it ends on. What do you think is happening at the end? is everything is everything going down the tubes?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, and you know you could see it as a very cheerful ending because it spells the end of the human race, so <laughs> it'll be really good for the birds and the lizards or the, the gerbils of the world, for instance uh, yeah, in our absence, yeah, yeah, everything is over.
0: do you think that these two stories seen together are you know aside from the issue of narration and event, do you think that they're Typical of of what Bartholomew did in his stories?
1: I do. You know, another thing I love about him is his range and variety. Within the context of a Bartholomew story, um, its absurdity, its humor, its abstractions, but within that context, yes, I think they are uh, typical with the one proviso I mentioned earlier in that these have more story content than some of the others and they do have characters who are speaking to you and the characters are going through some kind of emotional crises.
0: Now, he also was a novelist. How, for you, does this kind of density of style and absurdity, how does that work in a, in a longer piece?
1: Well, I loved Snow White. <laughs> I mm-hmm. loved his retelling of Snow White with its questions in the middle for the, for the reader, you know, speaking of, of postmodern hijinks. Yeah. I think I prefer him as a short story writer, For the very reasons you're implying here, that um, a game, if it were any longer, the repetition would begin to wear us down. Mm -hmm. I think it has to exist at this length or perhaps... You're the editor. <laughs> Perhaps you would have <laughs> well, cut a paragraph a, or two out of this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if you had been here, it might have been somewhat slightly shorter. I mean, it does have to go at about this length with this yeah. repetition for it to work. But yeah, I mean, this couldn't be a 20-page story. Yeah. Because again, it's just a what-if story that is just going to give us a little jolt at the end. Here is the premise. This is what it is.
0: William Gass, I think, said that Bartholomew Permanently enlarged our perception of the possibilities open to fiction. How much of an effect do you think he had on on the writers of his generation and of the next generation?
1: I'm sort of a transitional figure because I grew up with these stories and these were my heroes, uh, the absurdist uh, writers, writers of the fantastic, like uh, as I mentioned earlier, like uh, Garcia Marquez or Calvino. But then, you know, along came people like Raymond Carver and showed uh, the world that we can write very traditional stories uh, with with equal impact. I think today we're reaping the benefits of both. We have people working in all sorts of modes. There doesn't seem to be a dominant mode today. And from my point of view, that's wonderful. Um, I love range and variety in a writer. I love the fact that in a collection of 20 stories, each one is not in the same mode with the same kind of narration, uh, which we've seen so often with, with writers in the past. I think um, things are being shaken up and that there seems to be no prevailing or dominant mode in the culture of short stories right now.
0: Thanks to thanks to people like Carver and Bartholomew who made us see that we could do all of these things.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think writers this writer, I, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, want to challenge myself. We should challenge ourselves to try to do things we haven't done before, to always try for a different approach. And um, again, along with Coover at this time, who was writing uh, stories that were equally absurd, maybe a little uh, richer in terms of language, both of them were often taking our received notions or our mythologies and trying to stand them on their end to see what they really mean. For instance, Coover's story, The Brother, uh, a retelling of the Noah story from the point of view of Noah's brother, I mean, that seems to fit very much with the sort of thing that Barthelme was doing at the same time.
0: Can you point to any particular story of your own that feels to you most influenced by this?
1: I would think some of my very early stories, the stories in Descent of Man, For instance, Descent of Man begins with the line, I was living with a woman who suddenly began to stink. (laughs) Well, why does she stink? Well, because she's working in a primate lab very closely with a very handsome and keenly intelligent chimp named Conrad, who, of course, is far more attractive than the man she's living with. So I think that just that notion of coming with a line like that and taking something that was actually happening in society, like with game, and uh, examining it from a darkly comic perspective to see what it means to us. What does it mean to us to be the only animals to use language? Was that true? Could that happen? So yes, uh, definitely that kind of approach influenced me throughout my career, even the stories that I write currently, but more so I think in the beginning before I began to expand my range a bit.
0: Well, thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. This episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast has been brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to create your own
0: professional website or online portfolio. It's incredibly easy to use, and every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will look great on every device, every time. It starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. For a free trial and a 10% discount, go to squarespace.com and use offer code FICTION. T.C. Boyle has just finished writing his next novel, The Harder They Come. His most recent novel, San Miguel, came out in 2012. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes Store. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.